world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up. It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. Yeah, because, I mean, my problem isn't even how they're dressed or their design. I think they have, as far as costume design goes, I think they all look good. Um, they're, they're recognizable. As long as I can see, like, from the waist up, I can tell who each character is, who each girl is. It's when he does, like, close-ups on their face, though. Because a lot of the girls, especially if the girls are meant to be young and pretty, they all look alike. Oh, he does do a lot of same face. He does. And it's a shame because the only women who are different, who have, like, recognizable faces, are the ugly women. And I wish he gave that much detail or personality to the pretty women. But a lot of them just look the same. And it's, it's, it bothers me. And it bothers me more now that I found out that he's actually a very, very talented artist. Not that he wasn't because of One Piece, I mean, you. there's definitely a lot of skill in being able to draw what he does and some of the angles and and the breaking of body proportions that he does. Uh, so, yeah. like, I never doubted that he was talented. But I've seen some of his, like, portraits, some of him imitating other artist styles. Oh, like, just a lot of that more technical work. And it's just like, one, it makes sense why he does, why he does the art style in, in one piece. I think it helps him kind of keep up right if it's not as heavy an art style it's not a heavy lift to do that week after week after week uh so so there's that aspect of it but it also kind of feels like a bit of a slap in the face because like you absolutely could do more to differentiate uh female body types but he just picks the well the easiest one i think we have to wrap up this episode of the straw hat human registration podcast <laughs> Yeah, I have no earthly idea what y'all are talking about. No idea. Like one, I was like, oh, it's one of those animes again. And I think from here we should move on to the Snapper Human Registration Podcast, where we discuss the latest developments in the hit online game Marvel Snap. My name Thank is Steven. you. I, I'm a moon girl and devil dinosaur main, and I'm joined by John and Aldo. What decks are you guys running nowadays? <laughs> I'm trying to... I'm trying to get better at the game and moving on from my beloved Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur and uh, trying a uh, Carnage and Deathlock deck. I have been running a Carnage and Deathlock uh, deck, which I absolutely like, but also me being a Spider-Man shill, I am running a Miles Morales and Craven deck as well. Now, did you have to pay to get Miles Morales? Because I have not unlocked him. Same. No, no. I so So you get... The variant. You get, like, a season pass variant. But, like, not too long after that, I actually got in a random draw. I got the, the regular one. But the variant has the cool sort of, like, what's up danger style art, right? It does. Yes, yeah, it does. It, The variants are... Okay, overall, the variants are really cool. I find that I actually dislike the pixel art variants. Yes. Yeah, not a fan of those. But the rest of mm -hmm. them I've seen pretty dope. I got a Devil yeah. Dinosaur variant that looks like freaking Smog the Dragon on a pile of treasure, and I love it. Ooh. 
I need to send you I need to send you guys a variant, which I'm pretty sure is just a Scotty Young variant of Wolverine. I just came across uh right before recording. <laughs> oh, that's a hundred percent Scotty Young. And he's, and he's buck naked on top of a rock, picking his nose with his claws. <laughs> See that that beats my the cable variant I saw. That's just him holding all of his crap. Like he's just holding all of his cable, like accoutrement, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. And, and kind of on that note, right? On that note, where we're all like, "Yeah, I'm sure, sure that's Scotty Young. I know that's Scotty Young." Blah blah blah. Right? That's still my number one gripe with the game is there's yep. no art credits yep. on anything it's not needed i would love uh an issue credit if it comes from like a panel or from a or from a like a cover art or something it would be great to know what issues those are i feel like considering that they haven't even done an artist credit that's probably asking for a little too much right now but I would absolutely love it. Love, 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 love that. That was the, uh, they, like, one of the little notices was like, hey, take our survey. And I was like, okay, I'll not tell you our survey. <laughs> and uh, yeah. that was the thing I put. I was like, you need to credit these artists. It's fabulous work. It's really great. And, and you know, whoever makes my devil dinosaur shiny, mm, yes, and animated, his tongue moves slowly and creepily. <laughs> and his tail, too. Yeah. It's, it's, also, it's also, like, just the bare minimum you can do for an industry that has constantly exploited the rights of these creators for so many so many years right yeah how like i've seen i've seen a lot of artists i think uh art germ particularly used to be pretty vocal about it not as much anymore not now that he gets to make statues and they mail him a copy of the statue that you know he designed but (laughs) he used to also be really surprised and he would tweet a lot about when he would see his art like out in the wild, you know, based on like, you know, school folders and stuff like that. He'd be like, oh, great. I didn't even know this was a thing. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Making money certainly off of it. Yeah. Certainly didn't get paid for this. <laughs> Is that the argument where it's, they're like, what, like work for hire? And so that's, that's like the loophole where they can do that. Yeah. Pretty Screw much. Screw people over. So. Yeah. Sucks. Which is a bummer. It's such a huge bummer. Like, cause you know, Legally, the they're in their right, right? Like Marvel and DC and whatever. Legally, they haven't done anything wrong. Morally, though, they, they have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially because they make so much money off of these artists' designs, especially when they redesign characters, right? Like, when they every time that the X-Men have a new, you know, uh, modus operandi... <laughs> Yeah, and they get new costumes to celebrate it. How much mer- merchandise goes out for that, right? And, and like they get really not a whole lot other than like their initial, uh, you know, fees. And like the big, like <gasps> moments in all the movies or whatever that started off in the comics. Like, yeah, they get like mentions in the credits, but I hope that there's also other compensation awarded. But I doubt. You know, it. oh, you know who absolutely deserves so much money is. Oh, who was the artist for Civil War? I was going to say Eddie Granoff. It's not him. Oh, oh. Oh, who was the artist for Civil War? 
I, I, yeah, I, yes, I'm looking, yeah, <laughs> I gotta pull up our list. <laughs> Mark, no, that's the writer, it's Mark, uh, Steve McNiven. Yes, 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 yes. Smick, Steve McNiven deserves just the, the fattest paycheck for having drawn that Iron Man, uh, with the repulsors against the shield, against Captain America. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like that image. Because one, that image has been used so much, right? But also, when they recreated that in the film, oh my gosh, I remember every, like, a, the theater I was in was going wild, just going like, oh my god! <sighs> that's, why I, that's why I got back into comics, to be honest. I, w- I wanted to, like, catch all of those moments. Mm-hmm. And be in the know. Um, yeah. Yeah, understanding that it's, going, it's a different medium, they're going to do whatever they want with the story, but I think as long as they jump off from the same point... You know, um, yeah, I do that understanding that I'm still not cool, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say I was cool. I said I wanted to know what all the nerds were talking about. Well, I think that's enough uh, tangent. We actually do have comics to talk about tonight. Um, Indeed. And we need to dive into them so that I am not constantly uh, either doom-scrolling because it's election night or uh, distracting myself with Marvel Snap because it's election night. Anyway, we're trying something a little bit different on the show tonight. Uh, rather than we've we've got we've read uh, three stories and we're gonna rank those stories at the end of the episode like we usually do, but we're mainly gonna focus on the craft of one creator. The three stories that we read were a uh, early uh, appearance of Marvel's Dracula. This was what Marvel Dracula Annual Number Two. The the. Uh, but then we follow that up a couple of years later with Home is Where the Heart is, a, a New Mutants annual. And then we conclude with a Chris Claremont anniversary special. Three different stories from three different phases in the career of the quintessential X-Men creator, arguably the all-time great, Chris Claremont. Three different stories, really different art and storytelling styles, a couple of surprising through lines.
So, the first story that we read was Giant Size Dracula number two. Again, written by Chris Claremont, art by Don Heck, inks by Frank McLaughlin, letters by John Costanza, colors by L. Lessman, and Roy Thomas as the editor. And this tells the story basically of Dracula versus Cthulhu, sort of, but it's not really Cthulhu, it's just a big guy in like a Jack Kirby costume, kind of by way of the Wicker Man, where you've got these people who show up in this like small community that turns out is overrun by this cult. One of the investigators who's come here to investigate this murder is going to be a ritual sacrifice to bring forth this eldritch horror. Dracula mistakes this woman for his first love, and he goes crazy, and he beats the crap out of the Elder God, and that's really it as far as the story goes. We'll talk about some more of the details as we go through some of the writing quirks. Followed that up with the New Mutants Special Edition, which is actually the first half of a two-part story, uh, the second part being in an X-Men uh, annual or special edition. Again, Claremont was the writer. Art by Arthur Adams. Uh, embellishments, which I'm assuming is colors, by Terry Austin. Well, no, we've got colors by Christy Scheel. Must have been uh, inks. No, it's probably inks. That's right. Um, and it, maybe they actually added some additional pencils or something. Hmm. Letters by Buhalis, who I don't know who that is, and Tom Orzakowski, who was one of the main letterers for Chris Claremont, and then editor uh, or editor was Anne Nascenti. And this story shows Loki seeking revenge on the X-Men in general, and Storm in particular. Uh, he sends the Enchantress to kidnap Storm and the X-Men, Unfortunately, at this moment, Storm's not palling around with the X-Men. She happens to be with the New Mutants. And so the New Mutants get snagged along with Storm, and they get whisked off to Asgard. Magic tries to help them escape. Her spell doesn't work, and so the New Mutants get scattered all throughout Asgard at different times and different places, and they all have sort of different experiences. And then they come back together, they overthrow the Enchantress, and then they kind of psych themselves back up to jump back into the fray to rescue Storm, and that's where this portion of the story wraps up. The final story that we read weirdly kind of ties in with that one. Uh, again, this was the Chris Claremont anniversary special. Uh, Claremont wrote multiple contributors to the art. Pencils uh, from Brett Booth, Diego Olortegui. Olortegui, I should have learned how to pronounce that beforehand. Uh, Sean Chen, and, of course, Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, colors by Chris Sotomayor, Rochelle Rosenberg, Eric Arganiega, and Guru EFX. And then, once again, letters by Tom Orzakowski. Uh, this story follows Danny Moonstar, who, in her Asgardian adventures, became a Valkyrie, rode a winged horse, and kind of developed this relationship with death, kind of having this weird sort of competition with Hela, where she's getting whisked across time and space to different encounters throughout different versions of Marvel history, uh, different characters from Marvel Comics. Most of them are characters that were either created by or prominently written by Claremont. And in each of these instances, she intervenes in this combat, uh, specifically outing the villain, the Shadow King, who has weaseled his way in in some way. The Shadow King is trying to uh, destroy the Fantastic Four by taking over the body of, of 
Reed Richards, the, the Shadow King tries to destroy Carol Danvers by taking over the body of Rogue, and then he tries to kill Storm by taking over Gambit, and in each of these instances, Danny Moonstar intervenes and kind of secures for herself a place as a Valkyrie after she dies. So those are the, the stories that we read and kind of the broad plots, but I think we want to take a minute and talk more about Claremont himself as a person. And for that, I'm handing it over to John, because, yeah, he, he's, he's the guy with the plan here. So, <laughs> so um, in looking at this, the, the X-Men was canceled. It was, like, bottom of the barrel. And then they reissued it and people got more interested in it than they did giant size number one and that kind of opened things up and then 17 years of x-men was chris claremont that's an unbelievable run um in that time created rogue psylocke kitty pride phoenix the brood lockheed shiar the shiar uh, Mystique, Destiny, Celine, Reverend William Stryker, Lady Mastermind, Emma Frost, Tessa Siren, Jubilee, Rachel Summers, Madeline Pryor, Moira McTaggart, Lilandra, Shadow King, Cannonball, Warpath, Mirage, Wolfsbane, Karma, Cypher, Sabretooth, Empath, Sebastian Shaw, Donald Pierce, Avalanche, Pyro, Legion, Nimrod, Gateway, Strong Guy, Proteus, Mr. Sinister, Marauders, the Purifiers, Captain Britain, Sunspot, Forge, and Gambit. Um, that's a lot. And a lot of those stories of those... Britain? That's what it says here. Oh. Which, uh, interesting fact, he was born in London and uh, uh, then has lived in the States for a long time. Um, obviously, we've read the Dark Phoenix Saga. Have we read Days of Future Past on the podcast? We have not, actually. It's, it's good. Um, it's good because they started it with no lead-up. It was just like, out of nowhere, it's like, what, what's going on? Everyone's dead? What, 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 what? And Shadowcat was his character, you know, Kitty Pride, and this was right when she got introduced, and she's, you know, the main kind of um, character in that. So really interesting stuff. He's with John Byrne in the Will Eisner uh, Hall Award Hall of Fame. Um, I'm a fan. I get that sometimes we kind of roll our eyes because of it gets long-winded and soap opery, and we've seen a little uh, tonight. Um, however, I, I mean, not to spoil it or anything, I think that, um, each story we read as we got further on in time was better and better. Um, he went to college for political uh, theory and acting and, um, as an undergrad started, um, you know, working as a gopher for Marvel and, and really just one of those things like moved up the chain, you know, started doing, uh, you know, little writing jobs and editing and, and, um, you know, kind of saw an opportunity and, and just was like, I can do the X-Men. I want to do the X-Men and was at the right place at the right time and had the right story to tell. And, you know, as we can see, really gets into the characters and, uh, in a, in a unique way, I think. Um, and I, I'm glad that we hit new mutants twice in this because that was a team that he created. And I think, um, you know, getting to see that in its like prime time and then coming back to it, you know, just last year, I think was that story, the last one. Um, it's really interesting to see that. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure what else we want to say. Um, 
Cool. That's everything. Yeah. Right. He's, everybody yeah. For Good night, everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, just like, I'm not sure yeah. like what else we need to like, you know, say about his career. Cause it kind of speaks for itself. It, you know, all those years and years and years on X-Men making it, you know, what it is today. So. I I think part of what's uh, I mean okay I mean I don't have much else to add as far as like the history of Chris Claremont, uh, so I was gonna just move straight into the conversation if that was okay. I think that's reasonable. Yep yep yep. There's definitely a through line of Chris Claremont being a bit of a feminist and really working or writing to not make women just damsels in distress. Mm-hmm. And I like that you can see that from his earliest work up to, you know, the latest things that we've seen. Like, Danny Moonstar is so fleshed out as a character. And she, I think, has a very interesting arc, right? That we're kind of still seeing up to this day, kind of still fleshing out and keep kind of moving on. With a lot of that idea of, like, having a a, a greater calling, not just to her people, not just to mutant kind but also extending out into the heavens, into the Valkyrie stuff, right? And I think that's really interesting to see her kind of try to, you know, shuffle that, or not shuffle. (laughs) I think it's really interesting to see her juggle that against her personal wants, which is maybe to keep a little bit closer to home and, and, you know, not necessarily be this big intergalactic hero. Yeah. Um, And I don't think it's just feminism, although there certainly is, you know, a a very concerted effort and and Claremont sort of has this reputation for uh, really trying to ensure that his female characters are done well by. But also he makes a lot of really pointed, deliberate, clumsy, but well-intentioned efforts towards racial diversity. And as much as I think was allowed at the time, uh, diversity of sexual orientation. Like, eventually I think it's revealed that uh, Karma is gay. Um, he makes it a point of having Roberto da Costa be not just uh, Brazilian, but, you know, Afro-Brazilian, so dark-skinned, and he features, like faces a lot of racism and discrimination that way, uh, not the, the New Mutants are a very, very diverse cast. Um, and it leads to some kind of clumsy writing. There are near constant references to folks' skin color while they're walking around Asgard. And that's a little bit uncomfortable to read, but it never strikes me as malicious or condescending or anything else that we tend to associate with, like, overt racism. It's just well-intentioned, and clumsy. I don't know. And I think, like, it makes sense in the context of the story. Like, they're in Asgard, where, uh, at least at this point, you know, the characters in Asgard are universally portrayed as white, as uh, one would stereotypically expect from the Nordic regions. But, yeah, I, I, I see why so many, like, marginalized readers gravitated to the X-Men in particular because Claremont was really making these sorts of pushes to have this sort of diverse cast of characters, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Yeah. I would tend to lean and say that, yes, there are a lot of clumsy... <laughs> how, do, how do I say it? There are a lot of clumsy attempts, right? I think the whole thing with... Was it Karma? Oof. And her... The, kind of the obesity in that kind of comes off a little... You know, that's a product of its time. Oof. Oof. It's, yeah. it's, that's the, really rough. Yeah. The, the one with Birdo, though, I don't feel like that's nearly as as clumsy as i think uh you interpret that and that's mostly going off of personal experience in the sense that like even though walking into like a white neighborhood <laughs> people probably don't say it nowadays but you definitely get those looks where people are looking at the color of your skin i don't think i think that's probably one of the ones that felt the most genuine in a, in a sense and it's reminds me a lot of Brian Michael Bendis writing Miles Morales. Mm. And it's that same kind of like it's coming from the right place. And obviously I think Chris Claremont tends to stumble a little bit more. I think mostly just because of when he was a writer. Right. And we have a different understanding and different, you know, access to information and, and kind of communities. But... Yeah, I, th- I think he does kind of stumble a little bit every now and then. I think for a story on that special edition, that you mean special edition, for a really great story where you have a lot of female characters who are pushing past their insecurities, past their personal struggles, it is a little weird to have magic in a bikini Ugh. 99% of that, that issue yeah. as she's being beaten by Enchantress while the rest of the team gets to find whatever suits or clothing they get, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the sexuality is kind of what I was referring to when I was talking about different, like, uh, sexual orientations being represented Mm -hmm. weirdly as well, because there are these sorts of, like, they're, they're subtle, but there are these sorts of attempts to question, like, gender essentialism like warlock wanders in he's like why can't i wear the same swimsuit as my friend magic uh-huh. <laughs> and it's it's played for laughs obviously but it's also like there's a little bit of of subversion to it where on page there is a teenage boy in a girl's two-piece very you know scantily clad swimsuit and it's just a very interesting sort of deliberate choice that he's making to uh, show these characters as, you know, sexually curious and and comfortable in their own skin and stuff. And it reads a little bit. I don't I don't love it because the characters are canonically like fourteen through sixteen. They're very young. Mm-hmm. You can't tell by the design. Yeah, that's no. the, <laughs> that's the problem of comic books. It's like, yeah. well, yeah, uh, yeah. I I will say specifically on that scene, right? I think what for me made that scene actually a little endearing. On top of all that kind of queer subtext, is the fact that you have another character. I forgot his name. He's the one that speaks all the languages. Cipher. Uh, Cipher. Ramsey. Yeah. Doug yeah, Ramsey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ramsey. Yeah. He makes a comment about you know he doesn't want to laugh at him. He doesn't want to turn around and laugh yeah. because it is funny to him, right? But he talks about he doesn't want to do that because he knows he'll find it funny. But he doesn't want to make him uncomfortable. He doesn't want to make him, you know, the butt of a joke because he knows what that's like. And I 
you know, again, a bit of a stumble, but the heart is in there, right? Like, I don't want to do this because I don't want to hurt my friend. And there's something endearing about that. That's really good. I really liked that moment. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing that... To to kind of broaden the conversation beyond just the New Mutants, because we also read that Dracula story, one of the things that struck me about Claremont is that from the beginning, he has been a very verbose writer. Mm -hmm. There's just so much text on the page all the time. And it makes his stories... For one thing, it does make his stories harder to read. Um, But a lot of times that depends on the artist as well. Because I noticed moving from Don Heck to uh, Art Adams, I, I feel like the quality of the storytelling got better. And part of it is... Um, I don't want to, you know, no shade to Don Heck, a creator who I don't really know that much about, but, um, you know, seems quite, you know, skilled at what he, he does. But, like, Art Adams is able to kind of imbue these words, these massive walls of text with art that helps to carry the weight of the story as well. And so uh-huh. the scope of it kind of expands, but that that depth that just sort of like crunchy text walls of text they're present from the beginning and a lot of the quirks that um get associated with claremont beyond just the walls of text are there from the beginning dracula's story is full of you know characters speaking in dialect it's full of uh random introductory characters who who appear at the beginning of one scene and are dead a page later. Like, these are these are things that Claremont's kind of known for. If you've listened to Jane Miles explain the X-Men, talking about the Claremont years, they kind of get into that stuff, and it's like, oh yeah, no, it's here even in the Dracula story. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I think, I think another thing that he does, you know, even from the beginning, is he is not really quiet about kind of like injustices and i don't know of a better way to put that but kind of from the beginning he has characters that call out uh you know they use kind of like slurs right like in that in that dracula one they're talking about the muties and stuff like that and you have kind of the protagonist characters kind of shutting that down or you know not really buying into that uh rhetoric um which i think is a little funny that you know we do see that in in the Dracula book, and obviously that would be a real big point for what he would do later in X-Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Chris Claremont, anti-racist. Thank goodness, I don't know if I could handle that loss. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, now, yeah, in the last, the last several years, it's like, you know... <laughs> they say never meet your heroes, and now it's like never dig too deep into your heroes, because you know one minute there's a one minute there's a documentary about Elmo and the being a puppeteer, and isn't that great? And then the next minute, oh no, and yeah, like oh, oh no, Bill Cosby the... has a new special. <gasps> oh no, oh no, the red puppet monster. It's an actual monster. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that one of the things I did like. I, so okay, so I'm curious if all of you. All of you. The two of you read these in chronological order. I did. Or yes. you read them out of order. 
Yeah. Okay. So I read them in reverse chronological order. Mm-hmm. I went from newest to uh, to oldest. And part of that, I wanted to see... Ah, like I don't... This is going to sound like rude. I can't think of another way to say it. I wanted to see like the skill or the talent... Not the talent. Maybe the style deteriorate back to the base <laughs> as I read oh. these instead of seeing it build up to the to the modern. And definitely, you know, in, an increase in the amount of writing as you go further back. What was never lost is that sense of the drama of like the soap opera writing, which I I find it a lot more palatable from Chris Claremont than I do from some of the other writers at the time. And it's maybe because he's just... I think really good at making a lot of that drama feel like it's real to the characters. Because it feels like when you got a lot of it, it's either drama or like, you know, grandiose for grandiose sake. The, the characters maybe don't really believe it or maybe they're just there. But at least with him, the characters feel like they are in a soap opera and they believe it as much as the characters, as the actors do in a soap opera. Which... It is it is interesting to see that. And it makes sense, like in Dracula. Like just the amount of drama from from like when he's uh when drama's stalking a woman at the bar and she's like, Well what can I get you? And you know, he's like, Nothing other than your company and then there she's being walked home by a friend or uh, maybe her boyfriend or something and he's like, Yeah, if that creep if that creep uh, you know, comes out, I'll take care of him. And Dracula jumps out of an alley and he's like, fool, you think you can handle Dracula? And it's just, it's just dramatic. And yeah. But in addition to the melodrama, there's this, there's this interesting thing that I picked up on that uh, I don't know if this is missing from contemporary comics or just something that Claremont does really well uh, and is uh, like a side effect of the walls of text. But his characters are constantly in the midst of their own character development. Um, Mm -hmm. We see it very Uh prominently with New Mutants. Every single character is having their own sort of arc. Roberto da Costa is trying to prove himself, and he winds up in a situation where his efforts to, to, like, perform macho masculinity and stuff are really rewarded, and he kind of fits in there. Whereas... Uh, you know, karma is filled with self-loathing and has to kind of move past that when she finds someone else and that person kind of gives her the will to live. Um, But those are like sort of little mini arcs. They're kind of sandwiched between these other broader arcs. Doug Ramsey is feeling inadequate as a member of the New Mutants because his abilities are so passive they're not useful in combat and Danny Moonstar is is learning to navigate this sort of uh relationship with with death and uh Wolfsbane is dealing with this sort of sense of herself as an atrocity as a result of her very very strict and abusive upbringing uh and and learning about a natural sort of outlet for her her uh, love and desire, another sort of weird queer-coded moment uh, between two wolf people. Um, and the thing is, those story beats are constant, and they're not relegated 
to the issue itself or even to the story arc. These are things that are ongoing for the characters. And you even see a little bit of it in, in the Dracula story. Kate, the, the sort of empath mutant character, has a little bit of that going on as well. And we don't see it fully resolved here because it's just sort of like flavoring at the beginning before she gets swept up into the plot of everything. It's a really neat sort of way of focusing on the characters in addition to the plot. It really paints the picture of this as one episode of this grand ongoing narrative. So there's the melodrama of the acting in the script, but also the melodrama of all of these individual characters who are going to get more and more development as the series goes on, even if their arcs aren't fully resolved within these individual stories. It's great, and I don't, I genuinely don't know, and I can't think of many recent comics that I have read where that level of character development is happening with that many characters all at once. It's a real neat trick that Claremont has. I, I think for me, the closest I've seen to that in a long time, like that I can clearly think of seeing something like that, was Invincible. Oh, interesting. Invincible... And, and granted, Invincible has a much smaller cast, but from the very beginning, Mark's arc is never like completed. Like he never he settles into a role for like maybe a little bit before being shaken up yet again, and he's constantly trying trying to find his place in the politics of everything that's going on in the comic. And so that's one of those things. That's like probably the clearest example I can think of of recent comics, but. Kind of going back to the Chris Claremont thing, I think it's, you know, really interesting. I, and I agree with everything you said, so I'm not really going to rehash it. But <laughs> I think part of what I like, though, is, yeah, it's, we've seen a chapter of these of these characters' personal development. And I like that they have kind of a smaller arc, kind of in the same way that you have, you know, a whole run. And you have smaller arcs in them. You get that with the characters, right? We're seeing a smaller arc in a greater story. And I think it's really interesting because the characters don't always end in a different place than they start. Sometimes they maybe only take a couple steps forward. But you have stuff that sets up really well. Like the thing with uh, Cypher, right? Where he's like, I'm kind of weak and, you know, I'm tired of everybody putting me aside. And he finds that he can pair up, pair up like in a super suit, in a super robot suit with, uh, with Warlock. Right, and like that's a really satisfying kind of conclusion for like this week's episode, but it also sets it up for him to struggle in the future. Maybe not the next issue. Maybe like they settle into it and for a couple issues or a couple arcs, but then you have, you know how how is his confidence reliant on Warlock being there or not? Right, like that's probably set up and maybe even used as a plot device later on. Uh, you have characters who like end, uh, like Ronnie, right? She, they finish, and she meets this other wolf person and everything. And once she leaves, it's not like okay, I'm done. I've developed as a person. This is the end of my chapter. No, because she ends that story with a desire to go back, right? She wants to connect. And so I think it's really cool because, like a lot of these stories, a lot of these plot points do tie in nicely. To the story that we're reading, right? Which, granted, we're reading a, an annual issue, so we have a lot more breathing room to kind of flesh out and give 
seven characters a, a small arc. And the fact that most of these arcs kind of wrap up fairly nicely for like an episode is really skillful. I'm just I'm just relieved that you all went on this Chris Claremont ride because usually <laughs> all those like look there was so much there was so much written in this book there were too many words. I, I okay there's only so many number of times I can do that with <laughs> without it becoming like the annoying thing. I've said it I've said it twenty thousand times. <laughs> I thought it I thought it. <laughs> I expected that with the older comic and Dracula was a bit melodramatic, but that's, I mean, it's Dracula. So what else is it supposed to be? You know, you have a man in a cloak in a bar, like, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you can see, you know, early on, there are more of these narrator panels that are giving you things that we should have um, seen in the comic or, or, you know, show don't tell kind of moments. There was one, um, I got a screen grab up cause I was like, come on, come on, Dracula. It was, um, and then the maelstrom clears for an instant and Dracula sees just what he's been fighting. Words are inaccurate. We get this cool panel of him just <gasps> looking, you know, at his, his enemy, but like, show us, man. It was really annoying. We get less of mm-hmm. that when he's in a more comfortable situation where he's, you know, dealing with all the different stories going on with these characters that he created, um, you know, in like the dark Phoenix saga, one of the things that did annoy me is like, you know, all the the narration and it is because it's, you know, a, a monthly book, there is like that bit of time, like recapping or whatever. So we don't really have to deal with that, um, in these books that we've read. So it's not all, it's not, maybe it's not fair to compare the two, but it feels like, this was a better example without all of that uh, attached to it. And uh, I thought it was very clean. The last comic, I, I very little, if any, um, like expository writing like that, it all just kind of mm-hmm. happened. You know, better cohesion between writer and artist, I think. You know, uh, this is someone who's been doing comics and doing them well for decades. Like, this is, what, 50-year span, just about? Yeah, That we covered just with these when... comics? Yeah. Yeah, that... that... I think 1975 was the release date for Dracula or 74. 74, 75, yeah. So, mm-hmm. incredible run. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, and I think on top of that, right, what we get less of that expository writing. I think it's also just Claremont really adapting to the art, to the writing style at the time. Mm-hmm. We, you know, because I think it'd be, there's a reason why people tend, are able to stay so prolific, and it's not just because they're good. It's also because they stay rel like, they stay. I was gonna say relative, um, relevant. <laughs> yeah. They stay relevant, right? And I think if you don't adapt your writing style, if you don't adapt with the times, you, you're not relevant. And he's been able to stay relevant. I don't think he writes nearly as much anymore, or maybe he's doing a lot more, uh, creator owned stuff now, which I wouldn't blame him. Yeah. But, it is it is kind of great to see that in that issue that last one the um the chris claremont special yeah definitely was not as much writing and that was at least for me starting off there i was like okay well this is the baseline this is what i'm assuming is the least amount of writing i'm gonna see in a book and i was right uh because (laughs) it increased quite exponentially after that going backwards (laughs) but yeah it's it is interesting though that he still has 
quite a bit of text. And a lot of it is, I think, owed to the fact that he writes very melodramatically. And you cannot be succinct and melodramatic. Yeah. And so we've actually, kind of going back to the point I made at the beginning, we've pinged Claremont a little bit in some of his other stories for having some depictions of race and other cultures that have not aged very well. I'm looking specifically at Wolverine, the Wolverine mini that he did with uh, Frank Miller. And at the same time, acknowledging that some elements of his depiction of Japan and Japanese culture appear pretty insensitive and have aged pretty poorly, I think the, the reading that we've done today has kind of helped to reframe that as, again... The actions of a well-meaning idiot, to borrow a phrase from, <laughs> from Lindsay Ellis. Uh, well, it's not malicious. It's not uh, ill-intended. This is a man who appears to have cared fairly deeply about um, social justice and equal treatment and respectful treatment of folks of all different backgrounds and fell short in the pursuit of that ideal in his own fiction, but he pursued it and, you know, did so in a way that is, like Aldo's been saying, dramatic and engaging and full of what feel like very real stakes. And I would rather have that all day than writing that plays it very safe and always caters to the the broad demographic. You know, Claremont appears to be taking a lot of risks to try to help people feel included. And that's interesting that that's the thing that kind of stuck out the most from his writing from the three things that we read. And I think it's because it was so New Mutants heavy. But yeah, pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um. Is there a moment where we can talk about the art? Are we to that moment yet? I think we are. Um, I think it's actually yeah. relevant uh, in the conversation as well. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I did not expect to enjoy the New Mutants art as much as I did. Um, I thought that the Dracula comic was done well for its time, but we kind of see an evolution of comics in general in the, you know, this, this, you know, just about 50 years span. Um, and I, I'm very happy with where, where, you know, yes, there were good examples, uh, back in the day, but it got better and better. I think, um, I loved in the new mutants, how, um, the, Coloring uh, kind of gave us a shorthand, like we could see very clearly, you know, foreground, middle, middle ground, background, who the important characters were. It was a neat trick. Some of the, um, uh, it kind of had this crosshatchy look that I didn't like, but it worked uh, in that style. And it was, um, you know, dated, of course, because it's, you know, almost 40 years old now, but um, still very effective. And, you know, all of the characters had their own look and um, identity and everything. And then we got several different artists on the Chris Claremont special, um, each doing a different style that we see today, all 
gorgeous and really, really well done. I'm really happy with all of it. So um, I don't know how you felt Alda going in the reverse order, but I was just like, ah, I see, you know, the evolution of the of the genre. And like, you know, nothing wrong, nothing was wrong with Dracula at its time. Um, and certainly like it was, it was, you know, a good example of, of that. I just, um, I'm glad we don't have like a million little teeny tiny panels, you know, as the norm today we get, we get, you know, more interesting things. Um, you know, we're breaking out of panels We're you get a lot of beautiful like page spreads. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like there was an interesting, let me pull it up. I liked the Fantastic Four story because we got this, you know, this heavy ink kind of, you know, dark look at the beginning where um, Danny Moonstar is first kind of like, uh-oh, something is up and Hella is reaching out to me. What's going on? Is this real? And then they just uh, cool these this I... panel with the uh, with the Sue Storms, mm-hmm. you know. We I thought that initial... Yeah, I thought the initial pages were Jay Lee for a moment. I'm pretty sure those were C. Heavage. I think I think so. Because, mm-hmm. but yeah, that art style to me reminded me a lot of Len Wein. Or not Len Wein, sorry, Jay Lee. <laughs> Len Wein was a writer. Actually, Len Wein might have drawn a little too, but. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, Jay, Jay Lee. Jay Lee did a lot of fantastic art for the Dark Tower books, the comic books, and it was really reminiscent like this art was really reminiscent of that art style for me anyways sorry continue on something we see um a bit in this fantastic four story is where we get a large picture in the background um you know a large spread but then little inserts showing uh, more detail of like character action uh, character reactions and stuff so we see uh, this is page five you know there's this big page where there's a reed and a namor and a dr doom all who uh, turns out, I think they're uh, it's Namor and then two versions of Reed trying to get to three Sue st- Storms who are holding them off. Um, and that's like the big picture in the background. But then around the edges, we get smaller panels of the rest of the Fantastic Four in these different incarnations reacting to what's going on here. Mommy and Daddy are fighting. Sue and R- Reed are fighting. You know, it's we we see all the different kids and the uh, the the things in their various incarnations react to this. Very cool stuff. And then, you know, we get to a new artist. And so, great way of, you know, jumping between times, um, jumping between scenarios and everything. Um, you know, we get like a looser style with the rogue story. Really plays well to the Shadow King being, you know, very creepy and just... Uh, and then um, hopping over to the Storm story. That might have been my favorite art out of all of it. Um you know the the great coloring helped and great design for um, uh, Danny Moonstar Valkyrie, which I didn't know was a thing, and now I'm like, okay, I'm completely turned around on Mirage. Um, she's the best in the New Mutants, and everyone else stinks. So that's that's where I'm at. I don't know how your if your opinions of the New Mutants changed at all with this run, but um, honestly, Marvel Snap has done more to get me to like this spot <laughs> in this comics. <laughs> Fair, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did think it was a little bit of a funny coincidence that I had been using Sunspot who, a little, quite a bit in my in my deck, and we read the, these. I'm like, hey, <laughs> who is the artist at the end? The last two pages are my very favorite. Actually, I misspoke earlier. 
we get a page showing the demon bear on one side, death on the other, Hela on one side, Valkyrie on the other. Um, there are silhouettes of presumably Danny Moonstar or just dying people going black to white, just showing life and death, you know, kind of solidifying Hela's offer to um, Danny Moonstar. It's such a cool image. And the last one is um, her kind of breaking out of this silhouette atop her steed, you know, in her in her full outfit, and she's riding off for life. We win. It's just such a great page. Is that is that Bill Sienkiewicz? It looks like Sienkiewicz. Uh, like that sort of scratchiness around the demon bear is very Sienkiewicz. Was he the artist but on Demon Bear? He was the artist on Demon Bear. Yeah. 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 But I don't know that for sure, just because you know the individual pages are not credited, and I think that's something that a lot of these comics usually do. They'll say, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz artist pages one through five. Uh-huh. Uh, but they, I don't think this one did that. Which is a little disappointing. Oh my gosh, I just flipped through the book and got to the page where Sue Storm beats Doom Reed by finding out that he's ticklish. And that's so silly. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. But but works, wor- like, like that's that felt very Fantastic Four. I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I buy that. I buy that. Mm-hmm. I would actually argue that this final story, if it is indicative of uh, any sort of change or evolution in Claremont, it's it's showing uh, almost a quicker pace. Like, the mm-hmm. scope is broadened, where it's not just digging... Like, he's obviously spending a lot of time digging into the psyche of a single character, but also, like, this is just breakneck idea after idea after idea in a way that I tend to associate with writers like Grant Morrison. And I don't tend to think of Grant Morrison and and Chris Claremont as being terribly similar. But I think it's the nature of this particular story. It may not be indicative of his work as a whole. But I also think that this story illustrates a point that I was trying to make earlier, and it's to bring this back to the art. Claremont hits different depending on who the artist is. Some artists are better at adapting that sort of wall of text than others are. And I, like, thought the Fantastic Four story was cool, but I kind of struggled with it because the layouts and the art didn't do a good enough job to me of helping me distinguish between all of these characters, and uh, the pacing felt kind of off. Whereas uh, the Storm Gambit part, the layout was much more straightforward, but also there was a lot less text, so maybe Claremont has mm-hmm. kind of reined it in a little bit. Um, I don't know. I just I it's been this is an interesting experiment to focus on just one creator across multiple stories, but every time other creators were involved, it's like it's a completely different person, and so I think it just this has helped to illustrate the importance of the team, the collaborative nature of comics, as so many of these conversations that we have tend to, right? Yeah. I think one of the things that would be interesting, should we ever get to that point again, would be doing this with the inverse and following an artist's career and Mm -hmm. seeing how they work with different writers. Absolutely, we should do that at some point. Yeah. Because a good one would be adaptable, depending on this, this type of storytelling, and be able to, you know, change up paneling, change up how they show the characters, change up, you know, their, the normal camera angles they like, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, yeah. 
I will say that one of the things you asked earlier was about the art style, you know, going backwards, uh, you know, and, and kind of the evolution of comics art is I will say, and maybe it's just an unfortunate side effect of like, we picked, you know, three comics out of hundreds of thousands, <laughs> but based on these three comics alone, the paneling, the paneling for me is the biggest difference it, yeah, in, in art. It is a lot more unique, creative, a lot more flexible, dynamic in the anniversary special. And by comparison, not that it's bad, but by comparison, the paneling in the older books is pretty stale. It's there to do its job and that's it. And that's it kind of, this is, this is a comic book and this is something that developed from, you know, the comic strip. This is what it looks like. It squares mm-hmm. across a page. This is how we tell, uh, you know, this is how we use sequential art to tell a story. And so you had to fit it in there. And then, I don't know, I don't know. I, don't, I need to read about comics history to figure out, like, who was like, hey, yeah, hey, listen, maybe we don't do that. And then we do something else, you know, that. And because then you can tell uh, tell the story in a different way and I think really suck people in where it's not just we're observing the story panel by panel, but, you know, we're, we're getting more of the action and more of a feel for it because of, you know, the dynamic things that are happening on the page. Yeah, and you know what's interesting to me, though, of the three books, the New Mutants book was far and away the one that I preferred art-wise. Oh, yeah? Uh, maybe I'm just dating myself as a comics boomer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Thought it was really good. No, it it looks yep. great, like consistently good, and you know, hopping around all over Asgard and the other realms and stuff like that. And you, you know, you got, you know, really, I don't know. It was just like everyone got their own moment to shine and unique stories and stuff, and mm-hmm. you know, really interesting. You know, um, characters all well drawn and everything. Just really impressed. Um, I do like that Sunspot has always been an interesting character to look at. Mm-hmm. Especially like when he gets all, I don't know what, I don't know if he has a flame on word, but when he gets all sun spotted. <laughs> it's actually, it's whoop, there sun- it is. <laughs> like it's all sunned up. <laughs> yep. Gets all shiny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I think definitely, I think, you know, hiccups aside, I think what is really apparent, and you know, maybe it would be more apparent to me if I read more of the Claremont X-Men, which I don't, I stay away from, I, that's, listen, it's an okay neighborhood if you live there and you can afford it, but I, don't, I can't move into the X-Men neighborhood. <laughs> the down payment is too high. This is freaking Marvel gentrification going on. Uh, (laughs) but what i what i can say after you know reading even just these three books in the order is that clues claremont is you know he has he has put out on paper like a heart of gold and i would like to continue going the rest of my life believing that he actually does have a heart of gold and cares a lot about not just these characters that he's created, but the people that they're supposed to represent, which I don't know how you could do one and not the other. Well, and that's the last time that Aldo ever read anything. <laughs> having having reached contentment, uh, didn't want to risk that. And, uh, that's as good as it's going to get. All right, I'm going and canceling the hold. See you guys. <laughs> that is all. Goodbye. <laughs> 
Um, I, I, I think that's a good enough segue to, to get to the ranking, right? That, that was my closing thesis. Yeah. Yeah, but I didn't want to... I didn't want to school in a while. I didn't want to <laughs> fight... Because now we're going to have to fight about, you know, which, which what's better and what deserves to go where. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I know... <laughs> And now's the part, the part where I get to point out all the stuff I don't like that I think is a detriment. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's get into the ranking portion. And this is, again, going to be a little bit different because we didn't really talk about the stories themselves in much depth. Um, but yeah, currently on our list, we have a... Oh, 216 stories. Uh, We're getting up there. Yeah, Chris Claremont's on our list at both extremes. He wrote Big Hero Six, uh, the the Brave New Heroes, which is currently at number two hundred and three. Again, that's sort of that well-meaning uh, depictions that really didn't work in that case. Um, his, the highest story on our list from Claremont is Dark Phoenix, which is uh, currently at number twenty-five. Where, oh, where? Do we want to rank Giant Size Dracula number two? I think we can all agree that of the three, this was probably the weakest. Yeah, it's also... I don't want to put it... And I know we talked about... You just mentioned that Big Hero 6 is down that low. I don't think this goes down that low. Because at at its bare minimum, it is inoffensive. Yeah. Yeah. This is weak primarily due to its... Age, I want to say, mm-hmm. not yeah. necessarily yes. due to any failures in the writing or character. Uh, Marvel's Dracula isn't. I've I've wanted to get into Marvel Dracula for a while, uh, and the Dracula kind of of this era is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a pretty compelling set of stories. Um, this didn't quite win me into it. The comparison that I'm making in my head is to things like uh, Ghost Rider, the, like the uh, origin story of Johnny Blaze, which is pretty low on our list, number 198. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is that low. I actually do think this is better than that, but it's comparable in yeah. the sense that this is going for that same sort of like yeah. horror. This story knows a little bit more what it is because it's, its elder god is, is just a dude in a Jack Kirby costume. Yeah. Um, I so, also I also just cannot I just can't see the through line of how you get from this Dracula to Dracula on the moon. Rocket, yeah. you you got you got to take a rocket. Oh, that, see, he hasn't invested in SpaceX. Yeah, I, no, yeah, this totally <laughs> this is before he uh, sells his website and develops his uh, <laughs> space program. Yeah, Dracula, I mean, he's eternal. Years. Dracula has yet to buy his social media platform for $44 billion and then rebrand it to Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it. it I hate it. Bad. All right. It was real bad. <laughs> Blah. I'm going to charge I... you fees. Blah. <laughs> so back on the ranking. Don't bonus, mock I also, me. Blah. I was also thinking of stuff like, uh, kind of like Why Stands for Freedom. What the duck. Yeah. A little, like a little lower to that. Like just inoffensive. Like it's just there. It could have been the launching point for something good or something great, but just didn't kind of quite live up to that. I would put this 
below Submariner versus the Human Race because I remember like, hey, not bad, not bad. Uh, um, yeah, number. And uh, 178. Okay. Yeah, because I liked this better than Damage Control. Damage Control, um, I rolled my eyes at a lot. A lot, a lot. The idea of Damage Control is great. The way that it was executed... And I seem to recall, like, um, sexism and stuff in that, where it was like, oh, come on. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of eye rolling and damage control, so I enjoyed this more than that. That's my pitch, is that it goes up there. Um, that puts it above... No, I'm okay with, uh, with all the stuff that it's above. <laughs> I'm looking at all of it, and I'm like, eh, eh, eh. And yeah. That might, eh. be, that might actually be a little low for me. Because I kind of did like this better than the Submariner versus the Human Race. Um, and w- if I can put it above that, all of a sudden I have a hard time stopping. Because it's like, did I like this better than Maximum Carnage? Maximum Carnage is a mess. Did I like this better than that random uh, Spider-Gwen uh, Thanksgiving special? Yeah, probably. Did I like this better than Star Wars A Valentine's Story? Maybe that's where I pull the brakes. Um, but no, yeah, I man, could probably huh. skip forward a little bit more and I'd be okay with it. But yeah, I do think that we're kind of in the area. I was thinking somewhere in the 160s, 170s. I, I would say Exiles then is my ceiling, like that high, no higher. And I'd prefer, you know, closer to, to what I said earlier. But uh, I can, I'm looking at those and like thinking about them more. I'm like, oh yeah, you know what? Yeah. Like the Great Lakes Avengers uh, Christmas special. It is, I don't know. It's a Dan slot. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of in agreement with John. I think it's fine. It's good. I don't think necessarily better than Submariner. Imperious Rex. I'm okay to be outvoted on this. This is not vital reading for anyone, I don't think. Yeah. Unless, you, unless you're like a Chris Claremont completionist or a Dracula completionist or, I don't know, maybe Kate completionist. Maybe she's in more stories than this. I get the feeling that maybe, but we'll yeah. see. I get the feeling 177. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. Now, here's here's my question for the second story. Home is where the heart is. The, the New Mutants in Asgard. We read half the story. This story mm-hmm. is not done. We did not finish it. That's fair. Um, do we rank it now, or do we table it until we can read both parts? I would prefer to table it, honestly. Yeah, because then we can give it its fair due because it's like a it's like a pause in the story. There is a like you know it's a definite dividing line, but they still gotta go rescue Storm. They still gotta mm-hmm. deal with Loki. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and the the even the story beats that are set up within this story are not fully resolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So yeah, a lot of the characters want to go back to the places that they were at. Right, Wolfsbane yeah. has to go back and meet her her foxy love interest. Um, yeah, her. <laughs> I see. <laughs> howls, howls of derisive laughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she doesn't want to be a lone wolf anymore. <laughs> She's looking for her she, alpha male. 
She found her good boy. <gasps> Lot to pack in. Boo. That gets a boo. That gets a boo. <laughs> anyway. All right, so, yeah, I, th- I think we should table that Kenneth one. Kenneth Lupus. Think, oh, yeah, okay. I think as part of this experiment, it's fine, but yeah. definitely as a ranking, yeah, we definitely want to. I, I think it would be a disservice to it to try to rank it as it is now. Right, and I do think that this is something that we want to revisit and probably reread along with the second mm-hmm. part so that we can rank it yeah. properly. I would argue for it to go fairly high. I actually quite liked it, but same. We're not we're not yeah. there yet. So let's yeah, yeah. let's rank the Chris Claremont anniversary special. So what do we have that's comparable? Because Demon Bear is not super high. Demon Bear is... Demon Bear is as low as it is because, uh, again, well-meaning, but really hard-to-read depictions of race. Yeah. Um, that's, I, I, I feel like that was the reason Demon Bear wound up where it was, is, is yeah. two folks that got sucked into the Demon Bear's world and came out, oh, they're Native American now, somehow. That, that's, that's at 113... Um, the highest. Oh wow, that's really low. Okay. Yeah, the highest um, New Mutants get, however. I don't think they get much because uh, I don't think we've read much New Mutants. Um, just above that is the New Mutants graphic novel, uh, Renewal. That's at number one hundred three. And they pop up, you know, but I mean, all X characters pop up in uh, Second Coming. Yeah, those, which is that also count. Yeah, um, I'll tell you that I do not think this is better than Demon Bear. As fun really? as it is, as interesting as it is, um, I have I Demon Bear is lower than I think it should be um, because I think the art carries it. I really like Sienkiewicz's art in. Uh, especially in Demon Bear, but kind of in general. So I would not put this higher than that because this is so, this is so inessential compared to the other New Mutant stories that we've read that I don't think it goes higher. But I also am willing to bend if somebody has a better argument. But but to me, it's like one of the quintessential New Mutant stories plus the New Mutant's origin story. Both of those go higher than this, which is ultimately just a a silly art romp to give Claremont the opportunity to flex on characters that he's written before, like uh, Storm, like Carol Danvers, like the Fantastic Four, and of course, Danny Moonstar. Um, I, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. Uh, but... I still say the end result is really good. <laughs> and the art, is, the art really like kicks it up a notch. Um, as good as the Demon Bear is, art-wise... Um, this has some of that same, you know, it's, it's Bill Sienkiewicz again, even, even doing the Demon Bear again, we, we think, we believe. It'd be silly not to. Um, to silly big, hey, we're going to do a Danny Moonstar book, and there's going to be a page uh, showing the Demon Bear. We don't want you to do that one. We want you to do another one. That'd be kind of odd to me. Uh, yeah. hey, we got, we got the intro in a box of 64 crayons. He's going to do that page. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, don't worry. Robin's egg blue is in there and a yellow ochre, so we can do some blending. It'll be perfect. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I I still like it, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I okay. Apparently, my my opinion on this one was off because I am looking at this in the sixties. <laughs> yeah, pretty high up, and I was really comparing it a little bit to Thunder in Her Veins and Angela's Asgard's Assassin. Mostly in the sense that this does feel like the ending of a chapter of a character's arc before moving on to the next one. It feels like a really good development. I really liked Danny Moonstar's journey through through these as she struggles with like her own internal wants. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And the romp through different art styles and time periods I thought was like a really neat celebration of our writer. Uh... So to me, that felt like the culmination felt really elevated up to that point. But I was looking like around Angela Asgard's assassin, lower than Thunder in her veins, which is actually where Angela's assassin is at too. Uh, Asgard's assassin. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I maybe below Purple Daughter, but I would rather read this over Craven's Last Hunt. I was I was gonna say look. I would put it above the United States of Captain America because this one's not like a bummer and parts of that are kind of a bummer. Um, Cause that is another one where it's like every, every character has their own story. We're kind of hopping around stories with one mm-hmm. interconnected one. So it's similar, but I liked this better, but then I'm like, Oh, but Craven's last hunt and King dynasty, like King dynasty <sighs> has a, King Dynasty has a spaceship sword. Um, I know that I bring that up every time. I don't care. I do not care. Uh, I, I don't. I don't <laughs> mind. You can bring it up every time. I all. I already know that whatever King the Conqueror appears in whatever movies, if he's not in a sword shaped and named and is the Damocles challenging Captain America to a fight as he's crashing into the Earth, why would you even? Yeah. <laughs> A, a perfectly good waste of an of an amazing actor, and we get doesn't yeah. <laughs> not only not only oh my gosh it, yeah but, but anyway so like sorry I'm like a picture I'm <laughs> I'll I'll go down on that listing but uh, I I feel pretty confident that this should be at least in the seventies. We get Jonathan Majors and Anthony Mackie fighting on a spaceship as it crashes into Earth. I know that they don't fight till it crashes in the comic, but we got to up the scale for the movie. How cool would that be? Yeah, uh, where? What, what number did you say? Sorry, I was I was off daydreaming. I said seventies. I moved on. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Seventies. Did we? Did we? Did we beat the boss? Did we? Did I we think beat you some? did. I'm not happy about it. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> <compromise>. <laughs> I'll put this above United States of Captain America. Oof. 70, 77. All right. I forget what the final host is because it's a, it's a J, but it's a Jason Aaron Avengers story. So I'm guessing it's great, but I forget the specifics. That's, that's the one that we read with, uh, with, uh, Ghost Rider taking over the body of a dead celestial. Oh, yeah, that's pretty dope. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty metal. Seventy-seven. That's too high. Whatever. No, no, it's not. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) It's fine. It's 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 going to be a night of upsets. It's fine. So. uh... (laughs) Oh. Hey. 
You've been doom scrolling again, haven't you? <laughs> That's why he's been so quiet. He's been sad. <laughs> <sighs> well, anyway. So, for next time, we're, we're going to try something a little bit different. Again, we've been reading a lot of, you know, fantastic adventures, capes and tights and fights and Star Wars Lights. and ships and, like, all of these... We're, we're going to try to scale back a little bit with some classical literature. I'm going to start by going to early American fantasy with the adaptation of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by... Uh, art by Scotty Young, and the the text is by Eric Shanawar, I want to say. Well, I mean, it's adapting L. Frank Baum, but... So we're going to follow that up with classic Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, which I don't, I don't think I've ever read the comics adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Nancy Hayeski is the writer, and the artist is Sonny Liu, uh, an artist who I quite like, although I don't see much of him anymore. Uh, should be fun. Really, really yep. looking forward to this. I, I suggest that these... Because I, in my ever, ever going journey to turn John into a comic, into a manga and anime nerd, was trying to find out if we had the Attack on Titan Marvel crossover on Marvel Unlimited. <laughs> we do not. Oh we all, <laughs> they also, also the Deadpool Samurai manga is not on Marvel Unlimited as well. And that made me a little sad. And there's a few like Japanese things that weren't on there. And I was like, well... I don't want to read a normal comic. <laughs> I want to read a book, but with more pictures. So that's how I there ended you up go. suggesting these. Also, also I ended up because uh, as we were talking about trying to get, you know, as we were picking a writer or an artist to focus this episode on, I had suggested Roy Thomas, which we actually mentioned them a couple times here. Yeah. Roy Thomas, writer. yeah. He started the Marvel Illustrated line of comics where like they take classic literature or stories and kind of adapt them to to comics. He started that. That was a bit of his passion project. And these two books are in are part of that Marvel Illustrated line. So it felt kind of like at least to me it was a bit of a oh, well, we're not going to do an episode on him just yet, but it's a little neat to see that these are kind of continuing that project, that legacy. Yeah. <sighs> on a on a slightly related note, y'all are gonna find out that I am actually uh, real into that Pride and Prejudice stuff. So this should be an interesting conversation. 
I've seen all the film adaptations, I believe. And if there are more, don't tell my wife, because she'll make me watch another one. I have not read or seen Pride and Prejudice, so I'm going into this extremely blind. Hmm. Lucky. I think I read a little bit of The uh, Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and it's delightful. Um, really enjoyed the art, and it's, you know, not, not just a, like a rehash of the, of the story. It's kind of like Dorothy comes back, or maybe I read later on. <laughs> maybe I read a maybe different I Oz story, so. but this, it's great. I believe both, yeah, both of these ones are the first of both of their, I guess, series. Pride of Prejudice was the first Jane Austen book that was adapted to the comics and that wonderful wizard was also the first one at the bare minimum in like publishing order uh-huh yeah but yeah i don't know i we, we know i know steven is into jane austen because he kept calling jane foster jane austen for a while sure is. that's how we that's how we ended up with jane austen thor <laughs> jane austen's thor it is with <laughs> It is a well-known fact that... Hold on. I'm going to get it. Do it. I'm, I believe in you. I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> it is a truth universally acknowledged. There it is. That <laughs> in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. Or something like that. In want of a hammer. Pos- I was just going to say... I was just going to say hammer. hammer. <laughs> she'll have power over the lightning. <laughs> Thunder. 